0: Well, this morning we're beginning a new series of Bible studies. I've entitled, Scary Families. And I've subtitled these messages, Taking the Fright Out of Family Life. Hey, families can be scary. (laughs) Absolutely frightful. For starters, you find a woman that you like. Well, hopefully you love her. But you don't really know her. And the odds of you getting to know her before the wedding is basically slim to none. You see, she's putting her best foot forward. She's hoping to lasso a man and get him to the altar. It's only after she seals the deal that she's willing to let her hair down and let the real wife show through. And when that happens, it can be really scary. Of course, the same holds true for newlywed wives. I mean, she wakes up one morning, the morning after the wedding, and she discovers that the perfect gentleman doesn't always brush his teeth. Nor does he shave twice a day like he did when they were dating. In fact, he rarely, if ever, uses a napkin. And when he sleeps, my oh my, he makes all these awful noise and emits terrible odors. You didn't know a man could do that kind of thing. I mean, none of this was revealed while you were dating... It was just as if the guy led a double life. And then you show up for the first family get-together, and suddenly it all starts to make sense. No wonder my spouse is so weird. Look at his family. <laughs> These folks are spooky. My mother-in-law, she's got this agenda, and there's that crazy uncle and and that creepy step-parent. Man, this is scary. Family reunions feel like an episode of The Walking Dead. You wonder if there's zombies in the barn. And here's the funny thing. Your spouse's family scares you almost as much as your family scares your spouse. Ready or not, you're part of a scary family. And to top it all off, after surveying your spouse's gene pool, you start to wonder, oh my, what are my kids going to look like? And this gets horror show spooky. I mean, is my baby going to have his uncle's nose? Or is my daughter going to have grandma's hips? Or will he be bald by 25 like that strange, weird-looking cousin? Wow, family life is frightening. You remember Forrest Gump's famous line, Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And in a very real sense, this is also true of families. You never know the surprises you'll encounter in family life. Trust me, the only guarantee is that there are no guarantees. People change. Circumstances change. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. Sometimes you're not sure whether the change is good or bad. Babies get born and kids grow up and the elderly die and jobs are lost and new employment is found and moves are made and sickness occurs and teens make mistakes and then that wayward kin turns over a new leaf and then that adult goes off the deep end and over and over things change. And if you're a creature of habit, man, all this change gets very, very scary. I had a guy tell me once, I could never be with the same woman for a lifetime. And immediately, I recognized this man's ignorance. This guy knows absolutely nothing about marriage. Because when you're with the same woman for a lifetime, she changes a lot. It's like you've been with a lot of women over your lifetime. After 31 years, I've lived with numerous dress sizes and hair colors and body types and just about every mood you can imagine. I have made love to a 20-something babe and a nurse and a pregnant woman and a homemaker and a soccer mom and a Bible teacher and now a grandma and I never knew it could be so good. (laughs) Hey, family life can get really scary at times, but it's never boring, that's for sure. Even to happily married people from relatively normal families have no idea the changes and the challenges and the opportunities that tomorrow holds. Now, each week, of this series of messages, I'm going to start out our study with a few photos of scary families. I just think I should do this. And here is this week's sampling. First of all, uh, the kids with guns. There they are. This is really scary to me. I mean, what are these parents thinking? Hey, come on, kids. Let's get a photo in front of the tree with your new automatic rifles. That's like a scary family. Look at this, this kid is getting, look at the expression on that kid's face. I mean, it's like, okay, okay, I'm not sure I need this much affection. Control yourselves, would you? That's what this little kid's thinking. And then, man, here's a couple. Let's go for a walk, honey. (laughs) Hey, March. let's go for a walk down the interstate. There's lovely views from the exit ramp. And and here's a dad that has gone completely nuts. All four of his girls are dressed up in their brand new matching PJs and for some odd reason, this knucklehead dad goes topless. What's he thinking? Trust me, this guy is very, very scary. And that brings me to this week's lesson. Here's its title, When a Dad Throws His Family Under the Bus. For nothing creates a scarier situation for a family then, when dad succumbs to cowardice and throws in the towel. When a dad shirks his responsibilities and abandons his leadership and stops fighting for his family, life gets really, really scary. And that's what we find at the end of Genesis chapter 12. Let's work through the passage together. The story starts in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram. Now God is going to later change his name to Abraham. And so out of habit, I'm going to refer to him by both names, Abram and Abraham. But just know, I'm talking about the same guy. So Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now if we were to list the great men of the Old Testament, we could make a case. For a lot of guys, Noah, for example, what a great, guy, what a great man, what a great man of faith. Joseph Moses, the lawgiver, Moses. Maybe Joshua. Oh, certainly we could make a case for David. Or Elijah the prophet, or Daniel, or even Nehemiah. But at the top of that list would certainly sit this man, Abraham. He was the first of God's chosen people. The founder of the nation Israel. Did you know that three times in the Bible, Abraham is referred to by the exalted title, friend of God? Can you imagine a more glorious title? This man was God's pal. Even the Muslims call him El Khalil or the friend. When the New Testament authors seek to illustrate saving faith, they point back to Abraham's example. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Did you know that a full third of Hebrews 11, that famous chapter we call the Hall of Faith, is preoccupied with the faith of Abraham? 30%. Once there was a tour bus traveling through the European countryside, it seemed that every town or village could boast of some great resident that had been born there. Well, When the bus stopped for gas, one of the passengers rolled down his window and he asked the man on the stoop, sitting there on the stoop, he said, were there any great men born in this town? The old man replied, nope, only babies. The point is, is that great men don't start out that way. They're made, not born. Or you could say, they're born again. And such was the case with Abram. Joshua 24, verse 2, implies that Abe and his family started out as idol-worshiping Babylonians. Abraham was a sinner, saved by grace. And here in Genesis chapter 12, he shows his frailty and his faults. God calls Abram out of Babel and brings him to a new fruitful land. It's going to belong to Abraham and his descendants for all eternity. But as soon as famine hits, rather than trust God, the father of our faith tucks tail and he bolts for the Nile. Egypt had storehouses full of food. Abram wouldn't need to have faith in Egypt. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, I mean, he could see the pyramids off in the distance. He said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Now, what makes this so amazing is that Sarah was 65 years old at the time. Sixty-five. Here's a woman who went shopping for a bikini with her Social Security check. No cosmetic surgery for Sarah, no knife for Abe's wife. This was a silky senior, man. Sarai was retirement age, but still hot enough to get recruited to join the harem of this lusty oriental sultan. Now this kind of mature, ageless beauty, this is unusual, but it's not unprecedented. As a matter of fact, I did a few calculations this week. According to Genesis chapter 23, verse 1, Sarai lived to be 127 years old. If my wife lives to be 100, and she could. Her grandma lived to be 102, as a matter of fact. That means that 52 is to 102, what 65 is to 127. Puts it all in perspective to, with, to me. I'm like Abram. I'm married to a foxy freebird. The pretty Sarah and Kathy Adams are two peas in a pod. But Abraham, he has some fears, and they they arise in verse 12. Therefore, it will happen. When the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. They'll murder me to abduct my wife. That's what Abram's worried about. Now, you would hope that Abram would answer this threat with courage. I mean, he's the father of faith. That he would say something like, Well, we're going to stick to our guns. Honesty is the best policy. Or that he would buck up and trust in God's protection, or that he would even man up and lay down his life to defend his wife. But oh no, that's not what he does. He hides behind a skirt. In order to save his own skin, he begs his wife Sarai to lie to the Pharaoh. He says, Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. What a wimp. What a coward. He buckles under to fear. Sarah was a knockout, but all a fearful Abram is worried about is getting knocked off. So to safeguard his own life, he tells his wife to fib. Baby, take off your wedding band. Claim to be my sis. A miss, not a missus. You know, Genesis 20 verse 12 explains that this was partially true. Sarah was Abram's half-sister his dad's daughter, an arrangement that was morally accepted at the time. But Abram requires Sarai to go further and to disavow their marriage. He orders her to falsify the truth. Wow, this supposed godly Abraham isn't being a strong moral influence on his wife. His priority is nothing but self-preservation. And Abram's fears came true, we're told in verse 14. So it was, when Abram came into Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her. I mean, they were the first ones to spot her beauty, and they commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now, the most amazing thing about this story is that Sarai complied. You know, the Bible doesn't say that she lied as Abram requested. That would have been a sin. And a wife should never sin against God, even if her husband suggests it. But neither did Sarah buck Abram. In fact, she submitted to her husband's wishes, even when they were a mistake. Did you know that twice in the New Testament, Sarah gets commended? Once for her submission, and once for her faith. And that makes sense, because there's not a greater example of faith than when a wife yields to her husband. When a beautiful, honorable, smart lady like Sarah stands down and lets a flawed husband lead his family, it reveals tremendous feminine intuition and tremendous wisdom on her part. You see, whenever a husband shows a lack of judgment, it puts his wife in a pickle. If she doesn't take over, He's going to make a mistake. But if she does take over, ladies, your husband's going to stop trying. And he's going to vacate his leadership. And often, that ends up a worse outcome than the blunder. You see, if a wife doesn't let her man learn to lead, she's going to stunt the old boy's growth. A wise wife is willing to step back. And make room for her husband to step up. She trusts God to oversee his decisions. In Abram's case, even to overrule them. In the process, the husband grows. And God shows his faithfulness to the wife as we'll see in this story. You see, God protects submissive wives. But while she's being tested, it can get really scary. Just ask Sarai. What a pathetic situation this is. She's led off by these salacious sinners while Abram, a man who vowed to love and protect his wife, stands by with his arms folded and doesn't bother to lift a single finger to stop them. Well, verse 16 tells us the Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. As the supposed brother and custodian of Sarai, Pharaoh honored Abram. This might have been payment for Sarai. It could be that not only fear, but greed motivated Abram to pull this stunt. If so, that means Abram threw his wife under the bus, not only to save his hide, but to multiply his herd. That would make for an even scarier situation. One thing is for sure, Pharaoh's sheep... And donkeys and camels were the equivalent of blood money. I mean, how can a man be so calloused? Hang his wife out to dry just to add sheep to his flock? I mean, that's bad. Sure is. Abram should have been punished for this betrayal rather than rewarded. And I can only imagine how it aided his conscience. Surely, if he owned an ounce of manhood, he ended up despising the favor he gained for turning over Sarah. Every token of the Pharaoh's gratitude stuck him like a dagger. His good fortune only added to his shame. Rather than protect Sarah's dignity and purity, he had placed his beautiful bride in a compromising position. Where was his wife now? Whose hands were holding Sarah? Had she been violated? What a jerk he'd been. And now to be rewarded for it? I mean, he could barely sleep at night. He couldn't hold down his food. The man felt wretched. He had thrown his wife under the bus, and then he climbed into the driver's seat and ran over for good measure. Reminds me of Bobby Petrino. One moment, he's got a wife and four kids. He's coach of one of the college football's most promising programs. He's making $4 million a year, probably the most popular fellow in Arkansas. The next moment, he's on TV in a neck brace with facial abrasions, fired and disgraced, in his marriage in trouble. Bobby, how did it happen? Well, in a nutshell, he threw his family under the bus for just a few bites of forbidden fruit. I'm not picking on Bobby, but I just couldn't think of a better example of a man throwing away so much, so fast, on a single lapse of judgment. I mean, he compromised not just his family, but everything he had worked for. Abraham also threw an awful lot under the bus. It was more than just Sarah that Abraham disregarded. Think of all that he jeopardized just to make life easier on himself. The promises of God. His prestige and reputation. A princess that he had cultivated a life with. Even his heirs, his future posterity. Remember, Abram was the benefactor of incredible promises from God. While in Bible, remember, stuck in the emptiness of idolatry, God chose this man, Abraham. There was nothing special about him, but one of thousands of people who lived in the region. And yet God chose this man. He spoke to Abraham. He called him. He called him out of idolatry. This was amazing mercy. Then God takes this man across the fertile crescent to this rich and prosperous land. The land of Canaan was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And there God makes three promises to Abraham. He promises to give him this beautiful, bountiful land. He promises that his descendants will multiply into a great nation. And then one of his sons, Abraham's seed, will bring salvation to the world. We've talked about it before. He promises him him sod, seed, and salvation. But these staggering promises depended on Sarah. You see, Abraham's promised son would come through his wife, Thus, when Abe threw Sarah under the bus, he was ultimately tossing away the promises of God with her. I've got to tell you, I think about this a lot. The success I desire is not just about me. 31 years ago, I took a wife. And it would be a hollow victory for me if I achieved my goals without the woman who has stood by my side in the process being there to reap their rewards as well. You see, I've got what I think are some godly ambitions, but trust me, they are empty if they don't include my family. Kathy and I have come a long way. I want to make sure we make it to the finish line together. You see, Abram added sheep, servants, camels. He was treated well, but all the time he was living a hell. I believe a success that alienates or neglects your family and kids is not a prosperity that God authors. Abram threw away God's blessing along with Sarai. But notice too, when Abram threw Sarai under the bus, he also threw away a prestigious reputation. How could Abram not think that eventually the word would get out? That what he had done would be known in his nomadic circles? I mean, he would be labeled a coward and a liar and a good old slime ball. I mean, a man hiding behind his wife's skirt would never be treated seriously again. This incident was going to put a deep dent in his reputation. You see, the world of Abram's day was a patriarchal culture where men fight and died for their family's honor. A man's name and reputation was his most valuable possession. It meant something in that society you know, it still does to some people. I know I want to be a man known who keeps his promises, especially to my family. I want to be a man who keeps his word. I want to have a good reputation. I suppose Bubba Watson now holds the most prestigious award in sports. He owns a green jacket. Oh, my. It's about time the Masters was won by a southern boy named Bubba. I love Bubba's post tournament remarks. Did you hear him? He thanked his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then he gave a shout out to all his college fans. He said, Go, dogs! Just a great combination. But the way Bubba feels about his green jacket is the way that every man needs to feel about the reputation that he wears. Bubba wouldn't go out and spill gravy on that green jacket, he's not going to go and get butter on that jacket. Why would we risk staining our reputation when it's far more important than some jacket? How could Abraham be so nonchalant with his good name? Didn't he value the prestige that his life had earned to this point? How how could it just be so easy to throw it all away? It's ironic, but hard work goes into gaining a reputation. Long years go into gaining and earning a reputation. Whereas sometimes all you have to do to ruin one is nothing. He just stayed quiet. And often that's all it takes. A failure to act can stain a reputation. When Abram threw Sarah under the bus, he was tossing God's promises and his prestige along with her as well as a princess. You see, Sarah wasn't just a pretty face or a well-proportioned figure to Abram. You've got to know, lots of effort and patience and hard work and growing together had gone into their relationship. He had made an investment in this woman. She was his princess. The name Sarah means contentious. Think about this. Abram lived for many years with a gal named Contentious. Oh, my. I mean, Solomon also had some experience with such a woman. He comments on it, Proverbs 21 Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. In Proverbs 27, A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. He had some experience with contentious. It's interesting. Abram and Sarah were both married to a drip. But they worked it out. And you see, that's what real love does. It doesn't run. It doesn't bail. It doesn't quit. It works it out. Abram loved Sarah and he loved her and he loved her and he loved her until God changed her name from contentious to Sarah, which means princess. How do you throw a princess under the bus with whom you've invested decades and effort and sacrifice? How do you toss aside a person you've cried with, and laughed with, and overcome challenges together, and shouldered shared trials together? How do you just chunk that all away? How do you get so hard-hearted that you're willing to turn your back on the person who was your best friend? How does that happen? Whenever I'm tempted to think an unfaithful thought, I remember what Kathy and I have built together. I mean, for 31 years now, we've loved and we've fought and we've cried and we've argued and we've laughed and we've forgiven each other and we've forgotten stuff and we've loved again and we've raised four kids and we've made it through teenagehood four times and we've been patient with each other. And now we just fit. We just fit, man. It's like a favorite pair of shoes. We just feel snug together. We just fit. If we had to change shoes now, we'd end up with some blisters. We just fit comfortably with each other. You know, I've built a life with a wife. If I'm the king of my castle, then Kathy is my princess. In a lot of ways, it's taken 31 years for us to work out the kinks. It's finally gone from good to really good. How do you now throw your princess under the bus? And yet that's what Abram did. And sadly, that's what a lot of men do in our society every single day through infidelity, through pornography. Like Abram, all they think about is themselves, what pleases and satisfies them, even at the expense of their families. Oh, they seek the thrill and release of sex without being bothered with a wife and kids and the responsibility that makes sexuality meaningful, not just hormonal. They throw their princess under the bus. And most of the men I talk to, they regret it terribly after they do. Actually, a man can throw his wife under the bus in a lot of little ways not appreciating what she does for you and your family, saddling her with unpleasant duties, blaming her for failing at what you should have done, putting your wants ahead of her needs, etc., etc., etc. Rather than build into your wife, some guys take shortcuts. They desire intimacy without the sacrifice and diligence that goes into working on a marriage. Wow, Abram's selfishness heaved an awful lot under that bus. Promises and prestige and a princess and even his posterity. You know, your posterity are your descendants. They're the people that are going to come after you. Your posterity is the legacy and the heritage that you intend to leave to future generations. And i got to tell you, the older I get, the more I think about my posterity, what I'm going to leave behind me. I care about what happens to our church after I'm gone. I spent 31 years as its pastor, but I realize I won't be your pastor forever. I care about Calvary Chapel's future. Has a steady course been set? Strong enough to survive the future storms that'll try to rock the boat. I'm only 54 years old, but I think about this stuff. I certainly think about the mistake that I could make that would nullify a lot of the good that I've done and disqualify me from ministry. I realize it's happened to better men than me. I think about this, I'm concerned about this. I want my life to bring God glory, not shame. Posterity is also why I'm concerned over what my kids will say about me one day. Why I'm trying to be a godly example to my daughter-in-laws and my son-in-law. And why I'm now zealous about finding ways to influence my grandkids, especially when it hits me that granddad is a more distant position than dad. Most of all, I pray that the passion I have... For the grace and truth of Jesus Christ will go on beating in the hearts of the people I love, even after I'm long gone. I suppose that if Abram's life had ended in Genesis 12, he would have left a legacy, all right. But instead of the father of our faith, he would have been known for his cowardice. Later, God will take Abram out under the night sky, and He will show him the stars This was before the days of city lights and parking lot lights and all the ambient light that now reduces our night vision. God told Abram as he looks up into a flood of millions of stars, He says, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your descendants be. God made sure Abraham knew that he would have a posterity, that millions of people would lean on his legacy. Still today, Jews and Christians, even Arabs, trace their heritage to Abraham. Some of us need to be reminded that there's people that are going to come after us that are going to lean on our legacy, for better or for worse. We're not just shaping the present, but we're shaping the future. We're laying a foundation for those that will come hereafter. You know, it's really scary to me that there was a time in his life when Abraham was so consumed with himself that he was willing to throw it all under the bus. Even his posterity. Sadly, it can happen. Jim Loscalzo is a photojournalist who worked 16 years for U.S. News and World Report. He covered vital stories in over 60 countries. He loved his job, won countless awards, said he couldn't stop moving. He admitted, I'm somewhat of a travel addict. But his relentless pace eventually took a toll on his family. He was in Iraq during his wife's second miscarriage. Finally, Loscalzo, he decided to give it up, put his family first. He writes this in his memoirs. How to stop moving? It was about accepting a simple truth. In the world of photojournalism, I will always be a man of minor accomplishments. But in the field of fatherhood, to one little boy at least, I had a chance to become a legend. Dad, I don't know what drives you, but whatever tempts you to throw your family under the bus, it's not worth it. Your legacy is more important than you think. Think about God's promises. Think about the prestige of a good reputation. Think about your princess. Think about your impact on posterity. You see, it gets real spooky when a man gets so immersed in his own stuff that he's willing to throw it all under the bus. That's really scary. It's interesting what happens in the rest of Genesis 12. Here's hope for all wives. We're told in verse 17, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Even though Abram felt his wife, God did not. God honored her submissive attitude and rescued Sarai. God plagued the Pharaoh's household. We're not sure what it was. Perhaps barrenness or boils or blisters or battles. Who knows? The Bible doesn't say. But it was enough to pull Sarai out from underneath the bus and ensure her safety. The Lord even used the evil, idolatrous Pharaoh to rebuke the friend of God, Abram. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Now, I wish I could tell you that Abraham was a quick learner. But he wasn't. It will surprise you to know that this whole story gets repeated In Genesis chapter 20. This time Abraham and Sarah are traveling in Philistine country. Sarah is near 90 and yet still a hottie. And Abraham has the same fear. He's worried that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, will end his life in order to snatch his wife. And again, Abraham throws his family under the bus to save his own skin. i got to tell you, It makes for a really scary family when this stuff happens over and over and over again. No one trusts each other. Everyone gets leery. I mean, the wife and the kids are always waiting for the next shoe to fall. When is dad going to sell us out for a better offer? After a while, a family develops a fear of buses. You see, when dad doesn't stand up and lead with integrity and protect sacrificially, a family learns to live without him. Trust me, the leadership vacuum in your family, dad, won't last for long. Your mom, The mom will take over. Your wife will take over. Or worse, the kids will take over. And if dad is even still around, he becomes irrelevant. He gets reduced to a sperm donor. Or a bill payer, or a handyman. I wish we had time now to canvas Abraham's life for the moments where he turned it around, for he surely did. You see, if God had just been the God of the second chance, Abraham would have struck out. But our God is the God of the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the other chance when we need it, and the one more chance. Abraham eventually overcame his fear by growing in his faith. You see, here is the lesson for week one of scary families. Faith causes men to stand up and do right and take responsibility and fight for their families. Faith also causes women to trust God to keep working with their man. Whereas fear causes families to get thrown under the bus. Fear is a family's worst enemy. A 2011 study of single adults in America interviewed 122 married couples, folks ages 18 to 36 who lived together. And over two-thirds feared their own inability to form enduring marriages. Oh, they desired to marry for life, to do it right, as they put it. But they doubted they could. Most of these singles were products of divorce. They had tasted the consequences of their parents' failed marriage. The emotional pain and the social embarrassment and the child custody battles and the financial and the legal problems. And they feared repeating their parents' mistakes. Hey, talk about leaving the wrong kind of legacy. Fear is what crippled their desires for family. And fear is what causes dads to throw their families under the bus. The fear that they can't provide adequately. The fear that they won't live up to some standard. The fear that they'll never be enough. The fear that their own needs will go unmet if they embrace a family. The fear that they'll be rejected themselves. Hey, men rarely admit to these fears. And even fewer times do they talk about them. But they are very, very real in a man's heart. Man gets undermined by his fears. You know, the transformation in Abraham was dramatic. In Genesis 20, he throws his his wife under the bus. Then two chapters later, just two chapters later, Genesis chapter 22, he lays his son on the altar. One moment he throws his family under the bus, something happens, something changes, and he lays his son on the altar. It was an act of fear followed rather quickly by an act of faith. How did Abraham change? Well, in the aftermath of his failure, he learned that God was still faithful. When he lays his son Isaac down on the altar, he prays Jehovah-Jireh, which means God my provider. In Egypt and among the Philistines, Abraham saw God's devotion to his family when he was not devoted himself. And he finally mimics God. You see, a dad stops throwing his family under the bus when he realizes that God hasn't thrown him under the bus. Here's hope. Here's hope today. A family can change. God is bigger than our fears and our hurts. This gives great hope to dads who failed, and it gives great hope to families who hurt. And this is why both should stick it out. Husbands and wives should fight for their families. A family, any family, even a scary family, is a family worth saving. Don't throw away your family. Dedicate it to God. The scariest family of all is a family that's given up. Remember God's promises for you and your family. Remember the potential prestige and witness you can be. Remember the princess and the spouse that you've built a life with. Remember the posterity, what's coming after you that needs a legacy to lean on. Much is at stake. Don't succumb to fear, for God is able. He is able to help you and your family. Rather than throw your family under the bus, why not lay it on the altar? Why not recommit yourself to God today?